0: Long before the recently disbanded Alliance of American Football. Long before the XFL, both versions. Long before the World League of American Football, the USFL, the World Football League. Long before the AFL, there was the AAFC, the All-America Football Conference. A short-lived league, but one that struck so much fear into the well-established National Football League... That the NFL relented and agreed to absorb a couple of franchises. And ultimately, the NFL was so disgusted with its rival that it doesn't even recognize its existence. And next, on Sports Forgotten Heroes, we're going to talk about a league whose existence is very much still felt today. The All-America Football Conference.
1: This is Sports Forgotten Heroes. A tribute to the stars who shaped the games we love to watch and the games we love to play. Stars who provided us with many thrills, but when their time was up, they faded away. We'll take a look back at their spectacular careers, their moments of fame, even if it was just for one season or just one game. And now, here's your host, Warren Rogan. Hello
0: and welcome to Sports Forgotten Heroes. I am so excited to bring this episode to you. The All-America Football Conference. You know, when I first launched Sports Forgotten Heroes, one of the subjects I wrote down was the AAFC. This is a topic I have long wanted to cover. And despite repeated requests and reaching out to several people, I just couldn't nail down anyone to talk about this long forgotten league that is until i discovered the book the league that didn't exist a history of the all america football conference 1946 to 1949 written by gary webster a radio personality from cleveland so what makes the aafc so special and Why am I so fascinated by this long-forgotten league? Well, to begin with, the AAFC gave us three teams that still exist today, and all three are, well, in some way, shape, or form, iconic. The Cleveland Browns, the San Francisco 49ers, and the Baltimore Colts. The first version of the Buffalo Bills also played in the AAFC, And such great players as Otto Graham, Marion Motley, Y.A. Tittle, Joe Perry, Lou Groza, and Frankie Albert all got their start in the AAFC. There were rules that were adopted by the NFL that originated in the All-America Football Conference. It was a league that paved the way for football in the Far West. It was a league that paved the way to the South. The All-America Football Conference was much more than the USFL of the 1980s, and really only the AFL surpassed what the AAFC was able to accomplish, and we're going to talk about so much in regards to the All-America Football Conference, how the Browns totally dominated the league. What role the New York Yankees and Brooklyn Dodgers played? The introduction of professional football to the South in the form of the Miami Seahawks to the West in the form of the 49ers and the Los Angeles Dons. The need to build a franchise in Chicago and the man behind it all, Arch Ward. There's so much to cover with Gary and I think everyone is going to really enjoy this episode. Heck, you know... I hope you've all enjoyed every episode of Sports Forgotten Heroes, but there's something just different when it comes to the All America Football Conference. Now, as always, you can find links and more information about today's episode of Sports Forgotten Heroes on the web. That's sportsfh.com. You can also check out past episodes there, learn more about our guests, contact us with questions, ideas, and more. That's sportsfh.com Follow us on Twitter at SportsFHeroes Look for Sports Forgotten Heroes on Instagram and check out our page on Facebook You know, the All-America Football Conference came into existence in 1946 with teams across the country and ultimately closed its doors after the 1949 season In between, though It gave football fans incredible action. Its most celebrated team was the Cleveland Browns, a team that proved itself to be better than any NFL team when it was given the opportunity to play against NFL teams. It was a league that gave us free substitutions, that developed the playoff system, and it was a league that introduced professional football to places that had never seen it before and now let's get to today's show with Gary Webster author of The League That Didn't Exist a history of the All-America Football Conference 1946 to 1949 Gary, welcome to Sports Forgotten Heroes.
1: Well, Warren, thank you very much for having me.
0: Uh, it's a pleasure. I'm really looking forward to this. I have for so long wanted to do a podcast about the AAFC, and I am thrilled that I was able to hunt you down and talk to you about one of the, I would say, more successful opponents to the NFL that there's ever been, the AAFC. And I want to start with this. Your name for the book that you wrote is The League That Didn't Exist. How did you come up with that title and why?
1: Well, the interesting thing about the title is I have written... A number of uh, books for this particular author, and this was the first time that they used the title that I had uh, chosen. Uh, The idea behind it is simply that throughout the history of the All-America Football Conference, it was the NFL's policy to simply deny that it even existed. Hmm. And they held on to that for, oh, like two and a half years until the the middle of 1948 when finally with both leagues losing a great deal of money peace feelers had to be made but still today the all-america football conferences records are not recognized by the nfl they continue to try to pretend that the aafc never actually happened even though there are so many of the aafc's fingerprints all over professional football to this day. The the interesting thing, uh, among the interesting things, um, the Christian Science Monitor reviewed my book uh, very recently Mm -hmm. and said the title is somewhat misleading. And I don't think that's an unfair assessment, but I really think the title is more so ironic than misleading because you have the Browns, And you have the San Francisco 49ers Mm -hmm. in the NFL, both Mm -hmm. teams, born in the All-America Football Conference. And yet, for all intents and purposes, as far as the NFL is concerned, the AAFC never happened, never existed. Then where did these two teams come from? They didn't just show (laughs) up in 1950 and say, hey, let us in. So I think uh, the title is more so uh, ironic, really, than misleading.
0: Let me ask you this. So the NFL doesn't recognize the AAFC, but what about stats for players that played in the AAFC? I'm not sure the NFL actually compiles all the stats for everybody, but if you take a look at a a a website like football reference and you look up a guy like otto graham it would list his stats that he accumulated with the browns while they were in the aafc so i guess in the record books for the nfl would graham's stats from his time when the browns played in the aafc count
1: well um uh, a, a reference like uh, a website like like a football reference they uh, include the A A F C, but for example, uh, let's take uh, let's take Lou Groza, Lou the Toe Groza, mm-hmm. who was the premier place kicker of uh, of his era. The NFL record, and I don't have an NFL record here, a book here in front sure, of me, but sure. um, Groza scored 1,349 points in the NFL. And the NFL record book will show him with 1,349 points for his entire career, including AAFC. Groza scored 1,608 ah. points. But look it up in the NFL record book, and they will only give him credit for 1,349, those that he scored in the NFL.
0: Interesting. Very interesting. One other question for you about the All-America Football Conference. And, yes, folks, it's the All-America, not the All-American. It's All-America Football Conference. Why... Use the term "conference" instead of "league." Was it just something that Arch Ward did, and we'll talk about Arch in a in a little bit? Um, where did the name "conference" come from instead of "league"?
1: I think it was simply to separate the All America Conference from the National League. All of the other challengers. Uh, that actually fielded teams and played games and had seasons, all called themselves the American Football League. There were, as I point out in the uh, first chapter of the book, two other challengers to the NFL at roughly the same time um, that never actually got so far as even signing a player, let alone mm-hmm. playing the ga- uh, game or or actually providing any. Competition for the NFL, but uh, there was a Trans America Football League and a United States Football League, not to be confused with the uh, United States Football League of the 1980s. <laughs> yeah, gave confusing it, uh, spring football. <laughs> so I think the idea was to really differentiate and separate this new conference from the existing NFL, and for that matter, from the would-be challengers to the NFL, let's call it a conference rather than a league.
2: To, hmm. uh,
1: differentiate our, ourselves in the minds of the fans, AAFC, rather than the AAFL. Maybe it would help the uh, identity of the league by calling itself a conference.
0: Interesting. All right, so Arch Ward, again, we'll talk about Arch in a second, but why start a new league? What was the impetus for starting a new football league? Was the NFL just not enough?
1: Well, uh, here here, Warren is the reason, according to Arch Ward, this is directly from Ward, the man who founded the All-America Football Conference. When the conference merged with the NFL uh, late in 1949, as part of the postmortem, this is what Ward said. He created the AAFC to improve the standard of living for football players coming out of college and going into the professional ranks. It was strictly a means of creating competition for their services, Because, of course, now you had the NFL and the AAFC Mm
2: -hmm. competing
1: for the same players. So the price was going to go up. Ward said that he felt college players were not getting the kind of money in the NFL that they deserved. And by creating a second league and creating competition for their services, he was improving their standard of living. Supposedly, that is why the AAFC came into being. Now, what a what a big-hearted guy.
0: <laughs> you know, it's really, uh, it's interesting. Um, you know, I think, uh, obviously, the AFL was very successful and, and merged with the NFL many years later. And when I was reading about the AAFC, I, I got to thinking, could it have been that Arch Ward actually created... The league with the intention on ultimately merging with the NFL. And the reason I ask that is because I did a show on the Kentucky colonels and Mm -hmm. the colonels obviously were a part of the ABA and the ABA was actually formed with the intention on ultimately merging with the NBA now, of course, only four teams were taken by the NBA, but that was the intention of the league. And I got to thinking, could that have been, in any way, shape, or form, a desire of Arch Ward to ultimately have the best of his league or the whole league absorbed or merged with the NFL? Did you ever ever see anything like that?
1: No, I think that would have been plan B, and it, it's mentioned often throughout the book, but the real plan was to create the same kind of situation that existed in Major League Baseball. You had the American League and the National League. Since uh, 1903, they had been living a peaceful coexistence, mm-hmm. and their champions met in the World Series at the end of each season to determine the champion of the sport. Ward felt that there was room for another football league in 1945 when he made, uh, actually I should say 1944, made the announcement about uh, his plan to create the AAFC. The ultimate goal of Ward and the owners that he recruited was for the AAFC to exist in peaceful coexistence with the NFL, they would, in time, agree to a common draft and agree to a championship game at the end of each season to determine the champion of professional football. The The owners of the AAFC stated over and over and over again in 1946 and 47. And 48. This is what we want. Two separate but equal leagues, not competing for players, but having a common draft, and then having uh, a Super Bowl without using that term Mm -hmm. to -hmm. determine which team was the champion of professional football. If that could not be achieved, then merger was plan B, but the ultimate plan was two separate but equal leagues like Major League Baseball.
0: Hmm. Well, they never did get to the common draft, and while they never played a true championship game, there sort of was one game played, and we'll get to that later, between the Cleveland Browns and the Philadelphia Eagles. Um, And we'll talk about that later. First, though, what about Arch Ward? Who was Arch Ward and why did he want to do this?
1: Well, the fact that Ward founded the All America Football Conference gave it a credibility that uh, the two leagues I mentioned a few minutes ago, the Trans America Football League, which never so much as signed a player, and the United States Football League, which never so much as signed a player, the AAFC. Had a credibility because of Ward's track record. He was a well known sports columnist for the Chicago Tribune, and he had created two enduring um sports classics, one of which endures to this day. Ward created the Major League Baseball All-Star Game with mm-hmm. his idea. In 1933, during the Chicago World's Fair, or some sort of exhibition, I'm not sure if it was actually titled a World's Fair, but uh, Ward had the idea of pitting the American League's best players against the National League's best players, which had not been done before. The game was played at Comiskey Park, and Ward was able to coax John McGraw, legendary manager of the New York Giants, out of retirement to manage the National League team, Connie Mack who at that point was in uh, his 33rd year as manager of the Philadelphia Athletics, managed the American League team. They sold out Comiskey Park. Babe Ruth hit a two-run homer to win the game for the American League. It was meant to be a one-shot deal,
2: mm-hmm. but it was
1: so popular that, of course, it was continued and uh, and continues on to this day. Then Ward also created the uh, college all-star football game. There may be some, uh, I would hope that there are, many listeners to this podcast who uh, remember the college all-star football game. I do when every football season would begin with a collection of college all-stars, all seniors, because this of course was the era before seniors and juniors could uh, declare for the draft and go pro. You'd have uh, college all-star seniors from the previous season, Hastily thrown together with, I don't know, a week or two weeks or whatever of practices, <laughs> would take on the reigning NFL champions. And this was very popular for a number of years. I mean, they played this game in Soldier Field, Chicago, and drew crowds of 100, 101, and 102,000 uh, wow. fans.
2: Wow. The money
1: would go to a charity. So it wasn't like uh, the NFL was putting it in its pocket or the players' were or war it was. The money all went to charity. But it was an extremely popular uh, game until, obviously, uh, the pros began to be just too much for the collegians to handle. And the game was discontinued after uh, 1976 because the pros were just winning uh, lopsided games year in, year out. It wasn't a competition anymore but those were two enduring sports classics that Ward had created so when he put together or when he said he was putting together a professional football league that alone gave it a credibility that other competitors in years past didn't have so the the idea here was to raise money for charity that's what Ward wanted to do with the college all-star game and uh, that's that's the way it worked out so that is uh, the story of Arch Ward and uh, the creation of the AAFC. And the interesting thing about it is when you read the book, uh, he's mentioned extensively in uh, like the first chapter of the book. And then you don't hear from him again until the final pages of the last chapter. Mm-hmm. Because he mm-hmm. pretty much bowed out. He put together the ownership and then bowed out and said, it's, it's up to you now, guys. And he was not heard from again for four years.
0: Mm-hmm. How difficult was it to launch the AAFC? I mean, at this time the war was going on or it was just winding down. Was this an optimal time to try and launch a league and you know, what about the fact that, you know, the Trans America Football League was trying to get off the ground and the USFL of that era was trying to get off the ground, but obviously neither of those two made it, as as you alluded to earlier. How difficult was it to launch a league?
1: Well, you know, Warren, I think that's a very valid question. Why? Why did anybody want to start another football league? Because the National Football League at this time was still uh, very much getting its legs underneath it. The NFL was a second-tier sport in the 1940s. Judging by the research that I did for this book, and the vast, vast majority of the research came from the newspapers of the era, baseball, of course, was king. And then there was college football, and boxing got a great deal of uh, newsprint. Uh, professional football was well down on the ladder of popularity, it was way behind college football in popularity, and for that matter, in uh, respect the fans had a lot more respect for the college game than the professional game so why and, 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 and a and boxing
0: and boxing by the way was probably i would have to guess that football might have even been a distant third behind or maybe even fourth behind baseball boxing and maybe college football professional football might have been fourth
1: oh warren i'd say without question it was fourth. Definitely, now my, my ranking, and again, this would just be based on the amount of uh, newsprint, the number of stories for each sport, baseball, number one, college football, number two, boxing, number three. Now, they could be interchangeable, boxing and college football. Professional football, definitely number four. And uh, for that matter, not very much ahead of, uh, of hockey.
0: Really? Hockey was that popular back then? It was only in six cities.
1: You only had the six teams in the NHL, but you also had the American Hockey League, which was uh, just a rung below
2: Mm -hmm. the uh,
1: NHL. So I would definitely put football ahead of hockey, but not that far ahead. It really is important to emphasize that to get a real feel for where professional football stood. It's, it's difficult, I'm sure, for anybody today, uh, you know, in their 20s, 30s, even, even 40s, to imagine, uh, the, imagine the NFL as not being the juggernaut that it is today. Virtually the NFL impossible. pretty much runs the world of sports <laughs> it's vir- nowadays, yeah, it's- and it was nothing like that in the 1940s, not even close.
0: Yeah, it's virtually impossible to imagine that.
1: Very, very true. So why start a league in the 1940s? In fact, I speculate in the uh, epilogue to the book that just possibly one of the reasons that the AAFC failed is because they were trying to fill a void that didn't really exist
2: Mm -hmm. at that time. Mm -hmm. They're
1: really, from what I could gauge in reading the newspapers of that era, I don't think there was that much demand for professional football. The NFL, I think, was probably able to meet the demand. But but here's the thing that you have to keep in mind. The All-America Football Conference, the reason it was called the All-America Conference, and I'm glad you pointed that out, because even today... Um, people do refer to it as the all-american
2: conference Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. that is is a, a misnomer the NFL in
1: 1944 1945 was still concentrated in basically the northeastern quadrant of the country your furthest south team was washington your furthest furthest west team was green bay and you had the two NFL teams in chicago So it is all in the northeastern quadrant. Mm
2: -hmm. And
1: Ward's idea was to have a league that was truly all-American, with teams in the north and the midwest and the far west and the deep south. And that was something they accomplished. But was there really a demand for football in all of these places? And I, I don't think the demand was that strong. I think the AAFC was trying to fill a void... That really didn't exist yet. It would by the time the AFL came along in 1960. But in 1945, and this is just my opinion, I don't think the demand for professional football was all that great. Two leagues really weren't necessary.
0: Well, that would sort of explain, then, how they arrived in some of the cities that they did. So... Arch wanted to spread football across the country but to ensure that there was some success he had to put football aAFC football in cities that loved and and had established franchises so we're talking about New York and we're talking about Chicago and like you just said Chicago had two teams they had the Bears and And the Cardinals were originally the Chicago Cardinals. Mm -hmm. And then they went out to Los Angeles. And the funny thing is L.A. was about to get its first taste of the NFL at the same time as the Rams were moving there from Cleveland. And if anybody's interested, you could go back and take a listen to our podcast about the Cleveland Rams. They actually won the NFL championship and then just a short time later, packed up and moved to L.A. So why did they put teams in New York and L.A. and Chicago?
1: Well, um, first of all, if you want to succeed as a sports league, you have to have a team in New York, or at least that's always been the philosophy. Even back then, it was still the, the media capital of the country. And technically, the AAFC had two teams in New York because they also had a team in Brooklyn.
0: Yeah, I want to get to so that. They had just, yeah. in New
1: York. Very interesting. And um Ward being from Chicago envisioned the Chicago franchise as being the centerpiece of the AAFC. Didn't work out that way.
0: <laughs> no, it sure didn't.
1: And the interesting thing is, as you just mentioned, Los Angeles goes from being a city that has no NFL team to suddenly having two professional football teams. The AAFC puts a team in there, and Dan Reeves, within uh, less than a month after the Cleveland Rams win the 1945 NFL championship, moves the Rams to Los Angeles, so now suddenly... You've got two teams there,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and uh, the AFC put a team in San Francisco, and uh, originally the idea was that they were going to have to compete for fans in Cleveland between the Rams and the Browns. Then the Rams packed up and left, and the Browns had Cleveland all to themselves, mm-hmm. but still the, the birthplace of football is in, in the Northeast, I mean, Pennsylvania Ohio, um, New York, to uh, to a lesser extent. So Ward wanted franchises in these places, and then the idea was to expand into places that did not have professional football. Uh, maybe the most interesting, this uh, franchise would deserve a book unto itself. The uh, the Miami Seahawks.
0: Oh, I have some questions for you. I want to ask about the Miami <laughs> Seahawks. <laughs>
1: well, I, I hope I have the answers for you. The, the Miami Seahawks are uh, a fascinating story. They did participate in the very first ever All-America Football Conference game, and yes, I'm sure we will get to that shortly. But um, to to just uh, wrap up the the question that uh, that you were asking. You do need to have a team in New York to be successful, because that's the media capital of the world. Ward felt that the Midwest is football country, heartland of America, and you've got to have a successful franchise there. Who knows if the AAFC might have survived or at least been stronger if they had had a successful franchise in Chicago. And then go out west where there was no football, and go down south where there was no um, professional football, I should say. And you were truly covering America from from sea to shining sea, and he had his All-America Conference.
0: Yep, he sure did. And another thing he said he had was money. Oh, or yeah. They thought they had money. Who were the owners, and how important was it to include a guy like Dan Topping who the AAFC brought in to own the New York Yankees and that's the New York Yankees of the AAFC but he also owned another New York Yankees team how important was it to bring a guy in like Topping and who were some of the other owners that uh, the AAFC had
1: Well, Topping is a fascinating story, and I'll I'll go into detail about him in just a moment. But throughout the book, I do make a lot of references to money. The stories that I researched insisted that the AAFC owners had much deeper pockets than the NFL owners. And this insistence was happening while AAFC teams were barely getting by were going bankrupt or almost bankrupt in some cases. In fact, I found it humorous, and I I hope that it comes across in the book, because I wrote this in a a sarcastic vein. Doing my research, I just couldn't help but laugh at all these references to to money with AAFC teams uh, going down the drain left and right, all of this brave talk about, well, we have men with lots and lots of money waiting to take over the Chicago franchise in particular. Well, if this Rockets' ownership doesn't survive, we have another well-heeled ownership ready to take over. There always seem to be lots of people with lots of money looking to invest in the AAFC, and still you had uh, half of the league's teams barely, barely surviving. Sounds like the old
0: World Football League, too.
1: Yes, quite so, quite so. Now, uh, the phrase that you're using uh, about Dan Topping, how important was it? I think that can be looked at in in two ways. We can look at it now from the historical perspective, how important was it for the All-America Conference to recruit Topping as an owner, and how important did they think it was at the time, at the time, the other AAFC owners thought it was extremely important. And the main reason is, as you alluded to, Dan Topping owned two teams called the New York Yankees. Uh, with his partner, Del Webb, they owned the baseball Yankees. But more importantly, Dan Topping owned Yankee Stadium. Uh, And we are talking about the number one sports venue in America at the time. Dan mm -hmm. Topping owned it. However, he had owned the uh, Brooklyn franchise of the NFL since 1931, and the team had never drawn very well. It had never been successful on the field. And uh, the Brooklyn and Boston teams – had merged in 1945. Uh, That was a a common occurrence during World War II because of the manpower shortage. Some franchises merged. Some, like the uh, Cleveland Rams, took a one-year hiatus, figuring there just is not enough personnel out there for us to put a team together.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: So Topping owned the Brooklyn team of the NFL and played in Ebbets Field. And he wanted, once he purchased Yankee Stadium to move his Brooklyn team into it. However, right across the Harlem River was the New York Giants, owned by the Mara family, and they claimed territorial rights to the Bronx, meaning no other NFL team could play in Yankee Stadium. The Mara family would not allow it, and the NFL backed them up. So topping was stuck In Ebbets Field.
0: Hold on, hold on. So So the Mara family owned the Giants, and they played at the polo grounds, and then they ultimately moved to Yankee Stadium years later.
1: Yes, they did. When I was growing up, and the Browns and the, the New York Giants were arch rivals, I remember watching games every year, Browns versus Giants at Yankee Stadium. But in the 1940s, the Mara family would not allow Topping to move his team and I I mentioned this many times in the book that it can't be emphasized strongly enough, this is the stadium that Topping owned. I mean, this is like owning a house and being told by the people who live on the next block, you can't move into that house because (laughs) I have territorial rights to it. You own it, but you can't live there. That's crazy. You own Yankee Stadium, but I have territorial rights to the Bronx, so you can't play your home games there. And the rest of the NFL backed the Mara family.
0: Wow, that is so interesting.
1: So, after the 1945 season, when Topping was again rebuffed in his effort to move the team to Yankee Stadium, he said, fine, I'm leaving and I'm taking my team into the AAFC, where there is no territorial right to the Bronx. I can play in the stadium that I own, and the AAFC thought this was just marvelous that they were going to have a team playing in the most famous sports venue in the country. They bent over backwards for Dan Topping, first of all, and and he being a a shrewd businessman, he milked it for everything he was worth. First of all, if you want me, I don't want to have to pay the $100,000 franchise fee. And the other owner said, okay, we'll waive the franchise fee. (laughs) And then Topping said, it's extremely important that I have a good team here because for years in Brooklyn, his teams were the dregs of the NFL. Mm -hmm. So Topping said, I want to be able to put lots of people into Yankee Stadium. And to do that, I have to make sure I have a good team. And here's how we're going to do that. You are going to give me some of your best players. They held what amounted to an expansion draft, for lack of a better term, but each team in the AAFC was only allowed to protect three players off of its roster. Now, rosters, of course, in those days were smaller, but they were generally uh, 35 players, I believe. And 32 of those 35 players from every team were made available to topping so he could strengthen his team. And mm-hmm. the other owners said, okay, to that. So from the historical perspective, at least in 1945, the other AAFC owners thought it was that important to have Dan Topping among them to waive the franchise fee, to give him some of the best players off of their rosters. That's how badly they wanted him in the All-America Football Conference.
0: And he owned the Brooklyn team in the NFL, gave it up, goes to The AAFC becomes the owner of the New York Yankees. I guess he figured he would capitalize on the name Yankees, but the AAFC wanted a second team in New York, and they created a team in Brooklyn, the Dodgers, again, trying to capitalize on a baseball team name. Why did they think it was so important to have that second team in New York and and boy, that team wasn't very good either. So Brooklyn never really had a good football team.
1: No, the folks in Brooklyn were subjected to a lot of bad football over the years between the the NFL and the AAFC. Now, what happened with Brooklyn in the AAFC was when when Topping decided that he was going to move uh, into the AAFC, the NFL uh, vacated. His franchise, and they assigned uh, the players from the Brooklyn team to the Boston team, which had only been in the NFL for one year, and there was uh, disagreement over that too. I mean, the, the NFL said these players are under contract to us, and Topping said no, they're under contract to me, and that was all eventually ironed out. But um, what happened was there was already a team in the in New York in the uh, AAFC, owned by a guy by the name of uh, William Cox, who had been the owner of the Philadelphia Phillies a couple of years earlier and had been thrown out of baseball by Commissioner Kennesaw Mountain Landis Mm -hmm. for placing bets, which Landis absolutely hated. Now, Cox bet on his own team to win, but Landis despised betting in any form, (laughs) and (laughs) Cox was forced to sell the Phillies. The betting did not bother the AAFC, but Cox realized, okay, if Topping's moving in here and he's going to be in Yankee Stadium, I'm going to take the next best venue available, with, of course, the polo grounds belonging to the Giants. I'll just take my team to Brooklyn. Same market, and let's see if I can make it successful. So you've got a lot of uh, professional football in New York, and there would be even more before the decade ended. We, we might get into that uh, during the course of this discussion, mm-hmm. but before the decade ended, there would be even more professional football in New York than the three teams that uh, were in the, the city for 1946.
0: Mm-hmm. Who were some of the other owners, and and did they have money, or was it a uh, smokescreen?
1: Well, Warren, in some cases, yes. And I, I was never really able to determine how much money certain franchises had but I mean all you, all you need to know is which franchises flourished and which franchises went uh, went belly up so let's talk about the, the strong franchises first of all obviously topping in New York he was probably the uh, wealthiest AAFC owner his family owned the Anaconda copper company so for him to be able to own the Yankees and the professional football team they had money. The Yankees were never in any kind of uh, financial trouble. Then uh, in Cleveland, you had uh, a guy by the name of Arthur McBride, better known as, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, better known as Mickey, who ran uh, a cab company and had very deep pockets. Then again, the Browns would go on to set attendance records the first couple of years of the AAFC, mm-hmm. and there was never any question about uh, ownership or money in Cleveland, in Los Angeles, There was a native of Chicago by the name of Ben Lindheimer, who had a partner named Don Amici, Mm -hmm. who, of course, was a famous uh, movie actor actor and radio personality. Money was never an issue in Los Angeles. In San Francisco, the uh, Morabito brothers, Tony and Vic, were the main owners. They made their money in lumber and uh, also with them. Never any financial problems. That takes care of the really uh, strong ownerships. The rest of the AAFC teams were all in various stages of uh, financial trouble from time to time. The first owner of the uh, Chicago Rockets, a uh, trucking magnate by the name of John Keeshan, seemed to have the bucks, but apparently lost interest in football after a year and sold out. Hmm. And the Rockets, in their second and third seasons, uh, they almost went bankrupt in the 1948 season and had to be bailed out by uh, McBride and the uh, Morabito brothers and Lindheimer, or the team would have gone belly up halfway through the 1948 season. I forgot to mention the other strong uh, financial franchise, the Buffalo Bisons, who became the Buffalo Bills, mm-hmm. and they were owned by an uh, oil magnate by the name of. Jim Brule, who had all kinds of money and must have had all kinds of money because when the AAFC eventually merged with the NFL, Brule claimed to have lost over his four year ownership $700,000.
0: That's a lot of again, money. Consider from what back we're talking
1: then. about the 1940s here, not that 700000 yeah. is a big chunk of change today, but think of what that meant in the, in the 1940s but the bills never were in any uh, danger of going under because Bruel had the kind of money to be able to absorb that kind of financial loss. In Brooklyn, uh, Cox was around with a partner by the name of Gerald Smith for two years and then sold out. Miami, with a guy by the name of uh, Harvey Hester, and as you said, we will talk about them in, in some detail mm-hmm. shortly. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then Chicago. When Keishan sold out, he sold to uh, an underfinanced ownership in 1947, which sold out to another underfinanced ownership. Well, I say that they're underfinanced, and I can only go by the fact that after the 1947 season, the team was put back on the block and was practically bankrupt. Yet, throwing around figures, according to the uh, commissioner of the All America Conference, Uh, who in its second season was a guy by the name of Jonas Ingram, a former admiral in the United States Navy. Mm -hmm. According to Jonas Ingram, the group that Keishan sold the Rockets to was worth $33 million. Wow. And I find that extremely hard to believe because either they didn't have anywhere near that kind of money or they just weren't willing to spend it. But Mm -hmm. after the 1947 season, they threw in the towel, and the team was sold once again. Now, if you want to talk about staggering figures, and this one I I don't believe. There really wasn't any way for me to investigate the truth of this statement. But before the AAFC played its first game, Jim Crowley was the commissioner, one of the famous uh, Notre Dame four horsemen. Mm -hmm. Jim Crowley was the commissioner and claimed that the aggregate wealth of the AAFC owners of the eight franchises, there were more than eight men, because some franchises had uh, multiple owners, Mm -hmm. but the aggregate wealth of the men who owned the AAFC franchises, according to Crowley, before the 1946 season, was $200 million. Wow,
0: that's a lot of money for back then.
1: It certainly is. Now, who had what? Crowley did not go into any kind of detail. And, and as I've said, New York was solid. Buffalo was solid. Cleveland was solid. L.A. and San Francisco were solid. It just, it just does not seem possible that they had this much money unless the enormous, overwhelming majority of that $200 million was concentrated among the strong franchises. Mm-hmm. But I uh, personally, I just I can't find that statement to be believable. I really don't think that's that's the way it was. But anyway, that was what the man said. So throughout the four years of the AAFC, I kept running into statements not from the league itself, but actually from sports columnists in various cities who kept insisting. The AAFC has more money than the NFL, deeper pockets than the NFL. But the NFL outlasted them. Anyway, so that was the uh, the ownership situation, strong in New York, strong in Buffalo, Cleveland, Los Angeles, San Francisco, and weak in Chicago, in Miami, and in Brooklyn, heading into season number one.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Gary, any conversation about the AAFC really has to start with and end with its most dominant team, your team, the Cleveland Browns. The Browns were the only team to ever win a championship in the AAFC. They did it in 46, 47, 48, and 49. In fact, this is crazy. During the course of the league's four-year existence, the Browns, they not only won the championship each year, they lost a total of just four games. Tell us about the Browns and just how revolutionary a coach Paul Brown was.
1: Well, that is, that's a good word. Revolutionary is a, is a good word. And I, I mentioned in the book that it could easily have been called the Cleveland Browns and seven other teams Because essentially, that's what the AAFC was, the Cleveland Browns and seven other guys. And uh, here, interestingly enough, let me explain to you how the book came uh, into being, because it was not something that I had intended to write about, but my publisher had asked me, can you think of a, a book about the Browns? We'd like to publish a book about the Browns. Well, so much has been written about the Browns of that era mm-hmm. as opposed to the contemporary browns so i mean the, the contemporary browns would lose as many games in one month as the browns of the aafc lost in in 4 years so anyway <laughs> i came across the idea of writing about the 1948 undefeated untied all america football conference champion browns here's an example of what I'm talking about when I use the title of the league that doesn't exist. There have been only two undefeated, untied league championship teams in the modern history of football, which which I define as, as going going back to nineteen thirty-three when the NFL split into divisions and played a championship game. And most of the small-town teams had disappeared. It began to take on the, the look of the NFL as we know it today. So in the modern era, there have been only two. However, the NFL, of course, will insist until they turn blue in the face, oh, no, 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 no. There's only been one. The Miami Dolphins are the only team ever to go through a full season undefeated, untied.
0: Yep, because I have that noted. I have that noted. I was going there next. I was going to uh-huh. say the Dolphins in 72 go 14-0. and 0. The Browns in 49 go 14-0. and 0. And mm-hmm. the AAFC records don't exist. But the Browns had a perfect season. Well, maybe. It's really interesting, isn't it?
1: It's quite interesting, and I was surprised that nobody, even here in Cleveland with all the the fine journalists that we have had, nobody thought the 1948 Browns were worth investigating, uh, researching, and writing a book about. So there was my idea, and the research that I did in writing about the 1948 Browns, I compiled so much information about the AAFC, that I thought, hey, why don't I just add to this and research 46 and 47 and 49, because there really was nothing out there of any substance about the, the All-America Conference. So it was writing about the 48 champion Browns that led me to write about the, the All-America Conference. The bottom line being, is the reason the AAFC failed? Because the Browns were so... Incredibly successful. By the time you got to the 1949 season, and only seven teams remained in the All America Conference because Brooklyn, after three futile years, dropped out. The, the Dodgers had lost $320,000 in 1948. They were owned at that time by Branch Rickey, who I'm sure is a name that mm-hmm. many of your listeners sure. will recognize as being a hall of fame baseball executive and who dabbled in football. And as one uh, player who negotiated a contract with Ricky is famously quoted as saying, Ricky throws around uh, nickels like manhole covers. So when Ricky looked at the bottom line after 1948 and saw $320,000 lost, he merged the Dodgers with the Yankees. And that was the end of Brooklyn. So you have seven teams left. And everybody knew they were playing for second place. You just knew it. The Browns were too good to be challenged. They might lose an occasional game, and four games out of 59, that's very occasional.
2: <laughs>
1: everybody was playing for second place. So where is the, the challenge? Where is the excitement? Who's going to buy tickets to watch your team finish second or worse, because Cleveland is going to win the whole thing, and everybody knows it. So uh, as far as the word revolutionary, and I think that is exactly the word to describe Paul Brown, uh, the innovations that he brought to the game, it it would take a whole podcast in and of itself just to describe all the innovative things that Brown brought to professional football, but... First and uh, foremost, he turned it from a game of just brute strength into a game of intelligence.
2: Mm -hmm. Brown
1: needed intelligent players to operate his system. But he also apparently had an eye for talent. And consider, consider the way that the Browns were able to be built in 1945 February of 1945 is when Paul Brown was hired and as i as i mentioned in the book it is possible that right then and there that was the the final nail in the AAFC's coffin before they had even played a game when Paul Brown was hired to coach the Browns they could have given the rest of the league could have just given up right there of course nobody knew that at the time But Brown was able to recruit whatever players that wanted to play for him. The AAFC was not bound by a draft at that time. They eventually adopted one, but for 1945 and 46, Paul Brown could sign any player who was not under contract to somebody else. And obviously the man had a great eye for talent because innovations, aside, and motivation aside, you still have to have players who are bigger and faster, and they run better, and they catch better, and they block and tackle and do the fundamentals better, and Brown knew how to find those players, and there was a constant shuffling of the roster with the Browns throughout their four seasons in the AAFC. You would probably be very surprised by the amount of roster change there was between 1946 and 1949. Hmm. And Brown just kept on winning and winning and winning. But I think ultimately it was the innovation and turning the game from brute strength to a game of strength plus intelligence. Brown Hmm. brought playbooks into the game he used game film to show the players uh, what mistakes they were making, what they were, were doing right. But there, there's no question. If, if one man stands out as, because if you look at his record overall, uh, so many things that are still done in professional football today, Brown brought into the game and his coaching tree. Was uh, was huge. So revolutionary is the way, the right word. Paul Brown revolutionized professional football, made it into what it is today, or at least sowed the seeds for what it has become today.
0: Mm-hmm. And he might have done it all to the detriment of the AAFC, but he was so good. I mean, when the Browns ultimately went into the NFL, they were just as good and. Obviously, the Browns dominated uh, for quite some time. Hey, I have a question for you. I don't know if you know the answer to this. Were there any rules, different rules, um, you know, significant different rules between the play in the AAFC and the play in the NFL? And did the NFL adopt any of those rules?
1: Well, the one major difference that I was able to uncover, and in this difference, the AAFC was actually behind the times. They were behind the curve. Through the four years of the All-American Conference, they did not allow unlimited substitution. The NFL did, and college football allowed for unlimited uh, substitutions. I believe I read it was... Uh, during timeouts or between quarters the AAFC during its four year existence did not allow unlimited substitution so they were actually behind the curve rather than uh, ahead of it but other than that I'm not aware of any significant differences in the rules that uh, the NFL wound up adopting from the AAFC they were actually behind the curve on the one significant difference between the two leagues
0: do you know why? Do you know why they didn't allow unlimited substitution?
1: Uh, no, honestly, I, I don't know why that was. And when I discovered that that was the case, there wasn't any explanation for it. So I, I don't understand why they would uh, would do that, why they would limit the coaches to the number of players that could be substituted at uh, at any one time. So uh, for that, I'm afraid I I don't have the answer. I'm going to look further into that to see if uh, the answer might be out there somewhere because now that we've gotten into it, I am uh, curious to know.
0: Well, you'll have to let me know too. Hey, back to some organizational questions here, Um, particularly regarding the names of the teams. Obviously, the Yankees, I get it. The Dodgers, I get it. Why name the Browns the Browns, and where did the name Dons come from for Los Angeles?
1: Well, as far as, um, first of all, the Los Angeles Dons were not named after Don Amiti.
0: Bingo. I, sure this- I, yep, that's exactly <laughs> right.
1: That is such
0: a misnomer. Most people who, who have any knowledge of the AAFC don't know that.
1: I'm assuming, and this is just an assumption on my part. But uh, having taken Spanish in seventh, eighth, ninth, and tenth grades, I'm assuming that uh, Don's must be uh, a derivative of of Spanish. Uh, but I I don't know that for sure. I know that the, the logo of the Don's was like a conquistador's helmet, and I'm assuming that it must be Spanish in origin
2: mm-hmm. in
1: some way, and I apologize for being very vague about that, but that's just an assumption on my part, but yes, at least we can put to rest the uh, belief that the Dons were named after Don Amici because they were not unlike in Cleveland where the Browns were named for Paul Brown. Now, there are a couple of stories. the The Browns were not originally called the Browns. They were originally... Uh, as so many teams will do in searching for a nickname, they um, contracted with one of the local newspapers to have a name the team contest, and the panel of judges will select the winning name, and the person or persons who submit that name will get some sort of a prize. So there was like a $500 um, war bond, I think, because the uh, World War II was just winding down at that time, and I think the prize was a $500 war bond to uh, a gentleman who submitted the name Cleveland Panthers.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Now, there are two stories as to why that name didn't stick. One story is that Paul Brown knew about the very first American Football League, which uh, was in existence for one year in 1926. And Cleveland had a team in it called the Panthers. It played five games before it went bankrupt. And Paul Brown was aware of this and said, uh-uh, I want nothing associated with failure to be associated with my football team. Wow. Panthers won't cut it. Uh, And knowing the kind of guy Paul Brown was, that is certainly a a possibility. The other story, which I think may be more likely, is that after the team was named Panthers, um, a guy walked into the Browns' team office one day and said, "Um, I own the rights to that name. Cleveland Panthers belongs to me, and here's the proof. If you want to call the team the Cleveland Panthers, it's going to cost you X amount of money. (laughs) And the Browns and the uh, front office people said, "Okay, forget it. We'll have another name the team contest." I'm not sure which of those stories is true, or maybe neither one of them. But the name Panthers was dropped, and another name the team contest was held. And several people submitted the name Browns, which Paul Brown, being you know a successful person uh, and having an ego to to match, thought. I kind of like that idea. Have the team named after me. And that's where the nickname Browns comes from. Literally they were named after their their first coach, which kind of begs the question after Paul Brown was fired, you know why uh, why was the nickname?
0: Must have been must name? have been really weird. Must have been really weird for him. To coach the Bengals against the Browns.
1: The Browns. Yeah, the team still yeah. bearing his name. And yeah, that had to be a, a very strange experience. Um, <laughs> we talked about uh, the, the Dodgers, obviously, in Brooklyn, the Yankees, a whole lot of creativity there. Let's just adopt the name of the <laughs> baseball team. The The Buffalo Bisons did the same thing, they adopted the name of the Triple uh, A minor league baseball team, but after one year, they said, you know, we want to have our own identity. Mm -hmm. They held a name the team contest, and the uh, winning entry was the Bills, which was their nickname for the final three years in the AAFC, and of course, resurrected uh, in the AFL. And then uh, Chicago, the Rockets, I I don't know what significance uh, Rockets has to the city of Chicago. And the 49ers, obviously, named after the Mm -hmm. uh, the gold rush. The folks Mm -hmm. who came to San Francisco in 1849 looking for gold. So there were some clever nicknames among the AAFC teams, and then there were some that showed absolutely no creativity at all. And the the, the Miami Seahawks. Uh, I don't know if there are Seahawks in Miami (laughs) or not, but it was a a good enough nickname that uh, Seattle used it 40-some years later.
0: And a perfect segue into my next question. Miami. Talk (laughs) about disasters. The Miami Seahawks, they were the epitome of a disaster. Here are some of the things I researched about the Miami Seahawks. They were supposed to play in Baltimore, but the owner of the Baltimore team had to leave the country, so they decided to go play in Miami. This team could not score. This team could not make payroll. Who are the owners of the team? And in a league that was supposedly filled with such wealthy owners, how did this ownership group manage to get into the club? What
1: happened down there?
0: Enlighten us.
1: Well, obviously, that was the biggest mistake that the AAFC made yes they originally had a team in Baltimore all that my research indicated was um Baltimore is now out no explanation given but reporters didn't delve the way that they they do today Mm -hmm. so Miami came along the owner as far as I know it was uh, a single owner I never heard of any other name mentioned except Mm -hmm. a guy by the name of Harvey Hester who had some very interesting ideas about uh, running a football team. For example, and this maybe on the surface did not seem like such a bad idea, Harvey Hester believed that the best football is played in the South. So he only wanted Southern players on his team. And he signed a couple hmm. of, uh, of All-Americans, an All-American from Alabama and an All-American from Auburn. His coach, a guy by the name of uh, Whispering Jack Meager, <laughs> was the head coach at, uh, at Auburn. Mm-hmm. So the guy at least practiced what he preached. He hired Southern players. He hired a coach from the South. And the night of the first All-America Football Conference game. It was Friday night, September 6th, 1946, at Municipal Stadium in Cleveland. Browns versus Seahawks. As the players were um, limbering up on the field, Paul Brown was uh, down there watching his players loosen up, and Harvey Hester was on the field watching his players loosen up. And according to legend here in Cleveland, the two men uh, shook hands prior to the game and exchanged a few pleasantries. And Hester told Brown, you guys don't have a prayer because you don't have enough Southern players on your team. We are going to destroy you. Final score, Browns 44, Seahawks nothing. The Seahawks had zero yards in the first half. They had uh, 16 I think I've got this right, and it really doesn't make any difference which is which they had either plus sixteen rushing and minus sixteen passing or vice versa, but they had zero yards in the first half and in the uh second meeting between the two teams in Miami, the Browns won that one thirty one to nothing uh, thirty four to nothing excuse me thirty four to nothing so uh, the, the games between the uh, the team with all the Southern players and the team with players from all over the country, Browns 78, Seahawks nothing.
0: Like I said, they couldn't score. Oh, my.
1: <laughs> but there's more. We just just started telling the, uh, the tale of the, the, the Seahawks. Now, what was made a big deal of in the Cleveland papers a couple of days after the game is that the Seahawks Left town and didn't pay any of their bills. They didn't pay their hotel bill. They didn't pay their restaurant (laughs) bill. And um, Mickey McBride quietly, but apparently not that quietly because the paper knew about it. The Cleveland papers knew about it. He paid the bills so that the All America Conference didn't have a big, fat, black eye on its first night. But um, another of Hester's interesting ideas was. He thought that by November, all of the snowbirds would be coming down to Miami from up north. So he asked the league, can I have all seven of my home games in November and December? In other words, (laughs) Hester's plan was, I want my team to play the first seven games on the road and the last seven games at home. Well, the league didn't quite go for that. But they came pretty close. They gave Miami six of its first seven games on the road and six of its last seven games at home. They closed the season on a six-game homestand. And they did not draw five figures for any of their games. Remember, they played in the Orange Bowl, which had 80,000 seats. They never drew as many as 10,000 people to one of their games then by the, um, the middle of November, there was a column in one of the Cleveland newspapers, and the, uh, the Plain Dealer, and Whitey Lewis, the sports editor of the Plain Dealer, wrote that the biggest mystery of the season is what Harvey Hester is using to pay his players. And by the end of the season, it was revealed that they weren't getting paid. He was,
0: pay- he was using nothing the season, to pay them. <laughs> Miami
1: players, they did not get paid. You know, the, the, the big mystery is why did they keep showing up for practice and why did they keep showing up for games? They were not paid
2: really? for the last two yeah.
1: months of the season. Wow. So, uh, one game, one game, the Seahawks drew less than 3,000 people. Imagine less than 3,000 no, people I can't. in the Orange Bowl.
0: I can't. I just can't.
1: And believe it or not, they won that game. with less than three thousand people in the stands, they won that game, one of only three games that they won. But really the the Seahawks deserve a, a book unto themselves because they and who knows, who knows how that, well, after the season, after the season, something had to be done about the Miami franchise. And there actually was a group of Miami residents who went to the All- America Football Conference meeting and said, please give the franchise to us. Let us buy it. They're not saying give it to us. Let us buy it and keep it in Miami and run it right. And the AAFC just said, there's the door. We want nothing to do with <laughs> South Florida right now. And maybe, maybe that had an impact on the fact that uh, professional football wouldn't return to South Florida for another 20 years till sure. the Dolphins came along in, uh, in 1966, Sure. And one other thing, on a, really on a, on a serious note, and I, I would imagine, Warren, you probably wanted to get into this at, at some point. Um, when the Browns played in Miami in early December, there were two guys, of course, on the Browns' roster who were left back in Cleveland. That would be Bill Willis and Marion Motley, because the law in Florida strictly stated African-Americans yeah. and Caucasians cannot play each other in sporting events. Yeah. Not allowed. Yeah. And, and the Browns were not going to challenge that, so they had announced early in the season, when we go to Miami, Motley and Willis will be left in Cleveland. Because, first of all, Brown knew he could uh, beat the snot out of the Seahawks without Motley and Willis, but he also hated controversy and didn't want to get involved in any controversy. I'm going to challenge this law because I want these guys playing for me. So that was another problem that the AAFC was able to get rid of when they uh, got rid of Miami. Of course, that is nothing that the Harvey Hester had anything to do with. But that's, uh, in a nutshell, the story of the AAFC's Miami franchise.
0: Yeah, there's so much to cover, and that's one of the things I've, I've sort of avoided in on this episode and preparing is uh any of the uh racial tensions let's call it that affected professional sports back then back to miami for a moment mm-hmm. they were supposed to be in baltimore they end up playing in miami and then ultimately they do become the baltimore franchise of the aafc in 1947 you know The year after the AAFC was absorbed by the NFL, Baltimore sat out, and then they came back. Let's cover a few things here. Mm -hmm. There are actually two teams, and you said this earlier, still playing in the NFL that were originally AAFC teams. The San Francisco 49ers, and now you're going to disagree with me here, the Baltimore Ravens. And I say the Ravens because they're really the original Cleveland Browns, but Semantics.
1: Well, it is semantics, but yes, technically, uh, that is that is the truth. And the, the interesting thing is the uh, Browns moved to Baltimore for the 1996 season, which represented the 50th anniversary yeah. of the founding, of the, the beginning, I should say, of the All-America Conference.
0: Right, and we're doing this during the 70th anniversary of the league's last year. Mm-hmm. The Colts didn't play the year after the NFL absorbed the AAFC. But we haven't really talked about the Niners. Now, as good as the Browns were, and they were the best, no question about it, the Niners were a pretty darn good football team when they were in the AAFC. What can you tell us about the Niners? Well,
1: the 49ers were at the very worst, the third-best team, and quite possibly probably the second-best team in the AAFC. And for the 1948 season, when the Browns went undefeated at 14-0, and they were in the same division with the Niners in the Western Division of the AAFC. Um, when the Browns and the 49ers met for the first time that year, which was in uh, Cleveland in uh, the middle of November, It was the first time in professional football history that two teams, undefeated teams, had met that late in a season. They met, uh, again, I believe it was November 15th, and the combined record of the Browns and 49ers going into that game was 19 wins and no losses. Wow. And that had never happened before that late in a season for two teams to be undefeated and meet on the same football field the browns won that game 14 to 7 and then they were scheduled again just two weeks later in san francisco browns got out to an early lead the 49ers came back and uh, led 21 to 10 and they were driving for another touchdown Which probably would have put the game out of reach. And there goes the undefeated season. There goes history. And quite probably, there goes the the division title. Because in that game, the Browns came into that game with a record of 12 and 0. The 49ers are 11 and 1. So this time, the two teams meeting on the gridiron in the Kezar Stadium are combined 23 and 1. Well, Autogram led the Browns back. And they won 31 to 28 to preserve the undefeated season, but what was more important to all the players at that point was to clinch the division title.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So that year, the 49ers were 12 and two, and quite possibly the second best team in all of professional football. And by that, I mean better than anybody in the NFL. That's mm-hmm. arguable.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But potentially, possibly, they might have been better than anybody. In the NFL that year, they lost two games, both of them to the Browns, by a total of 10 points. Wow. Now, over in the Eastern Conference, you had Buffalo and Baltimore tying for the division championship at 7-7. Seven and seven. And uh, the playoff game went to uh, Buffalo, and they played the Browns for the AAFC championship. So imagine the 49ers. Yeah. Here they are, 12-2. and two. They got nosed out twice by the undefeated Browns. And after they win their final game of the year, they have to watch as two teams that between them won 14 games while the 49ers alone won 12, playing for the right to play the Browns for the AAFC championship. Really, the AAFC championship games were the two games between the Browns and the 49ers. The and that's 49ers, why we have
0: that's why we have wild card teams today.
1: Exactly. Well, what happened the next year is that with the AAFC down to 7 teams, they did adopt a more modern system and 4 of the 7 teams made the playoffs. With the number 1 seed getting home field advantage all mm-hmm. the way through, the number 2 seed getting a home field advantage in its first game. Uh, a very modern type system. Mm-hmm. And who should be the uh, number two seed that year but the 49ers. The 49ers beat the Browns twice. The only t- the only teams the Browns lost to in their four years in the AAFC were the two California teams. The Dons <laughs> beat them twice. The 49ers beat them twice. The second time the 49ers beat them, it ended the Browns' uh, epic 29-game unbeaten streak the browns went two calendar years no of october late october of 47 to late october of 49 two calendar years without losing a game they tied Incredible. two in that stretch but they did not lose a game and the game that they finally lost to end that 29 game unbeaten streak was to the 49ers and the 49ers blew them out of that game but when the two teams met again in the final AAFC game for the championship, the the Browns won. But the Forty Niners were at worst the second best team and organization in the the uh, AAFC, and there was just no question from the the very start. The NFL wanted Cleveland and San Francisco,
2: mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
1: and they wound up getting Cleveland and San Francisco. But it's interesting to note, and I've been uh, researching the 1950 Browns for um, uh, hopefully a, a potential book. As you mentioned, Browns in 1950 win the NFL championship. It's interesting that the 49ers, as good as they were, they struggled mightily in their first year in the NFL in 1950. The Browns go 10-2, and uh, tie the Giants for the Eastern Conference, championship, win the playoff game, beat the Rams for the NFL championship. The 49ers were 3-9 and nine in their first year in the NFL.
0: Interesting. I wonder how much that had to do possibly with travel or, or just an adjustment. That's really weird that, because they were such a good team in the AAFC.
1: Exactly. And they and had they, all the they, same quickly, players. Right, exactly. The Browns moved intact into the... NFL, and for that matter, uh, both the 49ers and the Browns were able to augment their rosters by picking up some of the players from the other AAFC teams. Mm -hmm. Now, the New York Yankees, even though they were not part of the merger, pretty much intact, the New York Yankees became the New York Bulldogs. The New York Bulldogs of 1949 were a lousy team, and they pretty much absorbed the New York Yankees. And now here is another interesting fact. And again, it kind of underscores like, wow, what happened to the 49ers? Because the Yankees had winning seasons three out of four, played mm-hmm. the Browns twice for the championship, made the playoffs in 49. Their team moved pretty much intact into the NFL. The New York Bulldogs had been 110 and 1 in 1949. In 1950, when they were pretty much the New York Yankees of the AAFC, they were seven and five. So that was quite an interesting season in the NFL in 1950. And then the Colts, who came along from the AAFC, they were one and 11 and disbanded after that one miserable season that Baltimore wasn't out of the league for uh, for too long, as we all know.
0: Right, right. Hey, getting back to Cleveland for a second, this was a team that had a rabid following, Like I said, I did a podcast, uh, you know, a while back about the Cleveland Rams. And this is a team that won. They won the NFL championship. And in fact, just as an aside, the Rams are the only franchise that has won a championship playing in three different cities. Why were the Browns, when they came into the AAFC, able to attract such large crowds as opposed to what the Rams did?
1: Now, Warren, that is, that is a very good question. Um, I can't really say that I have an answer for it or even uh, a theory for it, but the one thing about the, the Rams and I haven't done a great deal of research about the Rams, but I I have researched the the 1945 season. Um, First of all, the Rams were owned by Dan Reeves, who was from New York and was rarely seen around Cleveland. And the Browns were owned by Mickey McBride and uh, other minority owners who were all Clevelanders, all known within the community. I think to a very minimal degree, I think that helped. What the Rams may have done by winning the 1945 championship is lit the the fire for professional football that may have been uh, laying dormant all those years when the Rams were not a very good team. And Clevelanders uh, suddenly got interested in football. And, of course, everybody knew Paul Brown. Mm -hmm. I mean, he was from Massillon High School and Ohio State. He was an Ohioan. Everybody knew him as well. Uh, I think the the local flavor probably had something to do with it. I think there was probably some curiosity about the – AAFC, what kind of football is this league going to play? But in, in thinking about this question just now, I'm, I'm wondering, and this just popped into my head, I had not thought about this before, but there may have been some resentment on the part of the fans at uh, Reeves for moving the team mm-hmm. out of Cleveland. Basically, mm-hmm. hey, L.A. Is, is where I want to be, and Cleveland never really supported me all that well. Maybe the the sports fans of Cleveland wanted to say, "Hey, we'll show you. Just watch us support our new football team, pal. Watch us give this new football team the kind of support that that we never gave you." They may have had a, a bit of a chip on their shoulders. Maybe not. That's just something that has just uh-huh. popped into my head during our conversation.
0: Uh huh. Oh, they they certainly liked it when they came back and beat the Rams in the championship.
1: What about oh, Buffalo? Yeah, that, is, yeah, yeah. that is just such, such delicious irony <laughs> that for the NFL championship, first year in the league, who is the Western Conference champion but the Rams, the team that moved out of Cleveland five years before, coming back to town and losing an, an epic championship game by two points.
0: To the Browns. Incredible. To the Browns. Hey, what about Buffalo? Why were they not involved in the NFL's, in the NFL's, I can't say that word. Why was (laughs) Buffalo not involved in the merger? And all things considered, weren't they one of the better drawing teams in the AAFC? Why, Why not bring Buffalo in? I mean, it was a decent, it was a decent franchise.
1: Yes. It was a decent franchise, and uh, as I I write in the uh, the final chapter of the book, uh, Buffalo really did get the shaft in the merger agreement. Why the NFL wanted Baltimore? And these are the same questions that the people in Buffalo asked at the time. Uh, Baltimore, they went bankrupt after every season of their existence, after the 1947 season and the 1949 season. They had to literally go to the fans with hat in hand and say, please give us the money we need to field the team next year. What they did after the 1949 season, they were bankrupt, and they admitted as much. We are broke. We got no money. And the mayor of Baltimore said, here's what we're going to do. We're going to have a football game next year and charge $5 a ticket and we're going to fill the stadium with 50,000 seats because the, 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 the team said we need 250,000 to field the team next year. Okay, we can get that 250,000 by filling the stadium at $5 a ticket and the proceeds go to the team to keep them here next year. That is how financially bad off they are, yet the NFL accepts them. Buffalo supported its team. Supported it very well. As I mentioned earlier in our discussion, after four years, Jim Brule, the oil man who owned the Buffalo Bison slash Bills, admitted that he had lost $700,000, even though Buffalo supported the team relatively well. But here is the story behind uh, behind at least Buffalo not being able to join the, the NFL. The fans wanted it and at the first league meeting NFL meeting after the merger with the AAFC they were permitted to make a presentation to the NFL owners why Buffalo ought to be in the NFL and first of all the NFL now has 13 teams which is awkward that means every week somebody's got to have a bye
0: can't do that
1: Somebody can't play every week as you've got 13 teams. So Buffalo said, hey, you need 14. Let us be the 14th team. That means every weekend there's a full slate of seven games. Nobody has to miss out on any ticket or concession revenue. We can play every weekend. Look at the way we supported our team. Look at the attendance that we had. Granted, their, their stadium was even then. Which, which became a War Memorial Stadium. It was mm-hmm. called Civic Stadium in 1949. became War Memorial where the Bills played for uh, like 10 years or 12 years of their existence. So it was not the greatest facility of all, but uh, it was not really that much worse than any number of other facilities that were being used at the time. So the, the speculation, Warren, is, is this. If Jim Brule, who had been on record been on record as saying, I do not favor a merger. If we can't have two separate but equal leagues, then let me out of football. What happened was the Bills technically merged with the Browns, and Jim Brule got 25% ownership of the Browns. And instead of uh, living up to what he had said about no merger, I'm out of here, he said, oh, I'm glad to own 25% of the Browns. This will be great. So if Jim Brule had said, I'll get behind Buffalo's effort to get into the NFL, I'll own the team. I will own the team if you grant Buffalo the franchise. There's a lot of speculation that Buffalo would have been given the 14th franchise. But Brule said, no, I want no part of football in Buffalo anymore. <laughs> they didn't. Have They came to the NFL with $175,000 in the bank, but what they needed was an owner, and they didn't have one. If they would have had Brule, the speculation is they would have been attracted to the NFL. Yeah, it would have been a good idea to have an even number of teams, have 14 teams. Buffalo, quite possibly, would have gotten in. But just the 175000 grand in the bank wasn't enough. The NFL wanted somebody to step up to own the franchise. Nobody was willing to do that. So they took a vote, and the first six votes were in favor. But the NFL Constitution required, even for little teeny tiny matters like adjourning a meeting, believe it or not, they required a unanimous vote for <laughs> everything. Even if they wanted to adjourn for lunch, they had to vote unanimously <laughs> to do it. So Dan Reeves, with vote number seven, Said no. And that was the end of it. And Reeves said afterward, I have nothing against Buffalo. First of all, I think 13 teams is a bad idea. I think 14 teams is a worse idea. Wow. I have nothing against Buffalo. I would have voted against anybody. I don't want any more teams in the NFL right now. Wow. That's why Buffalo didn't get in.
0: And 10 years later, Ralph Wilson and the Bills come along in the AFL and as they say, the rest is history. I want to talk about two other teams, the mm-hmm. Los Angeles Dons. They had to compete with the Rams. They were playing in the same stadium. How did those two teams survive in the same stadium, the same city?
1: How well, did that so they're, work? they're fighting for playing dates at the L.A. Coliseum, and apparently they had to go to uh, whatever commission was in control of the Coliseum and uh, you know, fight over the playing dates, and I guess it was uh, first-come, first-served, basically, and whoever got there first could get the, the juiciest playing dates. But you know, Warren, what I have found really interesting about Los Angeles is now by 1949, the Rams had pretty much shoved the Dons aside. They competed pretty evenly for the first three years, but by 49, the Rams were uh, significantly Outdrawing the Dons. But one thing that happened on a number of occasions in Los Angeles, which really led me to scratch my head, they would draw 80,000 fans, 85,000 fans for exhibition games. The regular season started, and they would be drawing 30,000 fans for games that, that counted.
0: That doesn't make you know, sense. I guess
1: all you can say is. It's Southern California. It <laughs> doesn't make sense. And that might be as much of an explanation as you can come up with, but I would see uh, a half a dozen uh, examples of that both. The Dons would cram 80-some thousand in for an exhibition against the 49ers. When the 49ers came to town for the regular season game, they'd draw 30,000. Figure that out. And the, the Rams would do the, uh, the same thing. Wow. But that was pretty much the situation in L.A. in terms of both sharing the same stadium, first come, first served. Whoever got to the Coliseum Commission first to gobble up the best dates got the best dates. And the other guys were stuck with, uh, with what was left over. But you had, uh, with the NFL playing a 12-game season and the AAFc playing a 14-game season, you had 13 games being played in the Coliseum, not to mention the exhibitions. Hmm. It just was a, a unique situation where you take a city the size of Los Angeles, and in 1945, they have no professional football. Okay, they're promised an AAFC team for 1946, but that's not until 1946. Then suddenly, who shows up at the Coliseum but the world champions, not just any wow. football team. <laughs> the world champion Rams are now the Los Angeles Rams. And it's, it's not unlike what uh, happened in Los Angeles just a few years ago. Sure, After, the, what, 20 yeah. years without football, suddenly the Rams come back and the Chargers come back and you've got football uh, all over the place.
0: What, why did the NFL not decide to take the Dons on? Was it strictly because they were playing in the same stadium as the Rams and you can only have one team there?
1: Well, largely that was it. Um, the, the Dons technically merged with the Rams. Now, I have not looked over the rosters, so I don't know how many Don's players wound up with the Rams, but technically um, they did merge because uh, Lindheimer at that point really didn't have any desire to continue losing money. I mean, ultimately, that was what forced the NFL to admit there is a thing called the AAFC and we're losing money because of it. Lindheimer was a very wealthy man, and the Dons were never in any financial trouble because he had the wherewithal to sustain the losses. But he got tired of it like the other AAFC owners got tired of it. He was also in poor health by that time, so he was more than willing to uh, to bow out of football. And so the Dons and the Rams technically merged after the, the 49 season.
0: Mm-hmm. And what happened to the Yankees? I mean, they were good. They weren't the best team by far, but they were good. And they were coached by uh, uh, Ray Flaherty. And their star player was a decent uh, player, Speck Sanders. And they Mm -hmm. were doing better than the Giants at the gate. And I think they might have even been doing better than the Giants financially. But I think maybe attendance was a little forced. And by that, I mean... It's my understanding that Dan Topping and his GM Larry McPhail introduced a special ticket. Um, it was called the Stadium Club, and if you wanted box seats for a Yankees baseball game, you were forced to buy football season tickets too. That certainly helped ah. attendance. But uh, what happened to the Yankees? Why, uh, you know, why weren't they absorbed into the NFL?
1: Now, part of the the point of contention again was Yankee Stadium, which Topping owned, and which, as we mentioned earlier, the Yankees—I uh, mean the uh, Giants—eventually wound up moving into. Um, there had been talk about Topping being willing to give up the Yankees altogether if it would facilitate a peace agreement between the AAFC and the NFL topping really didn't want to bow out of football or give up the Yankees, but there had been talk about possibly if he was willing to give up Yankee stadium and give up the Yankees that could uh, break the, the log jam and get the deal done final deal done. But um, the, the thing about New York is remember that at this time, there was such a, a glut of football in the NFL uh, because after the 1948 season, a guy by the name of Ted Collins, who owned the Boston Yanks, decided New York is the promised land. And I'm losing my shirt here in Boston, and Collins was not one of the guys with deeper pockets in the NFL. But my salvation will be moving the team to New York, which, of course, (laughs) at the time, at the time, the Brooklyn Dodgers still existed. This was before the Dodgers were liquidated. And apparently, Ted Collins was just able to say, I'm moving the team to New York. And if the rest of you guys don't like it, too bad, because he, he did so. There is no record that I have read of his fellow owners opposing him. So for a very brief time, it never actually turned out this way because the, the Dodgers would quickly liquidate, but for, on paper anyway, for like two weeks, you had the Giants, the Yankees, the transplanted Boston Yanks, so there's confusion right there. You got the Yankees <laughs> and you got the Yanks, and you have, you have the Dodgers, the Yanks, the Yankees, and the Giants, all named after baseball teams, Yeah, and they're, they're all headquartered. in in New York City. And somehow, Topping just sort of became the the odd man out. He was willing to sacrifice the Yankees because he was losing money like everybody else. As Mm -hmm. I mentioned earlier, he had the capability of withstanding that loss. His family owned Anaconda Copper. They were mega, mega millionaires. But He had the capability of withstanding the loss, but he was getting tired of it, like everyone else. He had mentioned often, like during the 1949 season, that, you know, hey, if it means getting rid of my team, but we can end this pro football war, then I'd be willing to do it. And as I mentioned a few minutes ago, they technically merged with the New York Bulldogs, who had been the Boston Yanks and turned it into uh, a pretty good team. But there was a realization on everybody's part that as big as New York City is, it can't handle all of this professional football. And Topping was willing to, uh, to bow out and leave the NFL, or leave the city of New York to the NFL. But, yes, they were. I mean, the three strongest franchises in the AAFC were Cleveland, New York,
2: san francisco hmm.
0: why did the aafc have a different commissioner every year and the chicago franchise the, which was supposed to be the pride of the league based off of arch ward was such a headache talk about having a different commissioner every year the instability of the league and why in the end the nfl just didn't wait for it to collapse
1: Well, getting started with, first of all, the the commissioners. And yes, in four years, the AAFC had three commissioners. The first one was Sleepy Jim Crowley, who had been one of the uh, four horsemen at Notre Dame in the 1920s. I think the main reason Crowley was selected to be commissioner because Crowley, when he was offered the AAFC job, was actually under contract to be the head coach of the Boston NFL franchise after the war. And the AAFC supposedly had a hard and fast rule, we will not contact anybody who's under contract to the NFL. And yet they did contact Crowley. He took the job. I think uh, part of the reason was the commissioner of the NFL was a guy named Elmer Layden, who Mm -hmm. had also been one of the four horsemen at Notre Dame,
2: mm-hmm.
1: name recognition. People recognize the name of Jim Crowley. He had a good, outstanding record, actually, as a college head coach. He was then uh, coaching one of the Service Academy teams. And I think the NFL really figured, uh, the AAFC rather, really figured the NFL's got an ex Notre Dame guy as their commissioner. Let's get one of our own, and not only that, but a teammate of the former NFL commissioner, and maybe here's something to keep in mind, because, Warren, the the bottom line is if everybody is to be taken at face value with the quotations that I got from them in my research, the AAFC owners went into this really not to compete with the NFL, but to work with the NFL. They really wanted to be on an equal footing and an equal partner. They did not want to compete. They just wanted to go in the football business and be an equal partner with the NFL. So if we get Crowley, who was a teammate of Layden, they can probably work things out and we'll get exactly the kind of of agreement that we want. Well, that didn't happen. The NFL wanted nothing to do with the AAFC and ignored them to the fullest extent possible. Crowley did not particularly care for being an administrator, from what I have researched. Mm-hmm. So when the opportunity came for him to uh, become co-owner of the Rockets and head coach of the Rockets, he was more than willing to, uh, to step aside, step away from a $25,000-a-year job. He signed a five-year contract for 125000 and walked away from it with four years and $100,000 left, on the contract, but he was a coach at heart. So that takes care of commissioner number one. And there were rumors that some of the owners were not happy with Crowley's performance. They thought he should have tried harder to facilitate uh, an agreement with the NFL. There were other owners who thought he uh, was a little too uh, lenient on certain Franchises, No names were mentioned, but they felt like he favored the Yankees and probably the Browns and maybe the 49ers. No no names being mentioned. So the second commissioner was a guy named Jonas Ingram, who was uh, retiring from the Navy. He was an admiral. He had actually been the head coach at Navy uh, back in the 19-teens, uh, an athletic director at the Naval Academy in the 20s. His job was specifically put an end to the war and let's have the agreement that we're trying to reach with the NFL, equal partners. And, and Ingram said, that's why I'm here. And if I can't get it done within a year, I'll step aside. And at the same time, or roughly the same time, the NFL fired Elmer Layden and uh, hired uh, one of the owners, a guy named Burt Bell. Who did quite yep. a bit to yep. bring about the, the modern-day NFL. So now you have the two commissioners are Bell and Ingram, and Bell is continuing the NFL's policy of ignoring that the AAFC even exists. In two years, Ingram was not able to bring about the uh, agreement that he was hired to bring about, so he stepped aside and his successor was his deputy commissioner, a guy named Scrappy Kessing, Oliver Owen Kessing, who was also a Navy man and had been Ingram's second-in-command, his mandate is the same. Let's get that agreement and stop this war. And ultimately, it did come to an end under Kessing's administration, but the interesting thing about that, the negotiations that resulted in the quote-unquote merger agreement, and I I use that term loosely because it certainly was not a merger in the same sense that the NFL and AFL merged in 1966, but the negotiations did not involve the commissioner. There were only two people involved in the negotiations on the part of the All-America Conference. One of them was Dan Sherby, who was Mickey McBride's uh, minority owner in Cleveland and an attorney and the other guy was the attorney for the New York Yankees. Hmm. The commissioner of the AAFC didn't even know the talks were going on. Nobody knew but the the people involved. And so that's how secretive the talks were, but that's also how uh, relatively unimportant the office of commissioner of the AAFC was in the ultimate matter that uh, brought the league to a conclusion the commissioner didn't even know what was going on he knew nothing about it <laughs> that's
0: crazy Absolutely. a lot of crazy, crazy. things
1: uh, involved with the uh, the AAFC and that was certainly certainly among them
0: so by 1949, it was no secret that the AAFC was about to close its doors. I mean, they were struggling. The NFL was struggling, too. But obviously, the AAFC was going to be absorbed by the NFL, or at least a couple of the teams anyway. How disappointing was the final championship game of the AAFC? Cleveland won it 17-7, to but the crowd was small. It was like only 22,000 people there.
1: Yes. It was. It was, well, the, the story of the merger broke. Uh, I believe it was the day before or maybe two days before the championship game. So, I mean, that should have not have anything to do with uh, advance sales of tickets. And you'd certainly think Browns 49ers, probably the best rivalry the AAFC had, should have drawn. A lot more people. Let me tell you. Let me tell you an interesting story about that uh, playoff in, in 1949. It was called the Shaughnessy Playoff after Clark Shaughnessy, the the college football coach who supposedly invented the system. And as I mentioned earlier, the system was seven teams in the AAFC, top four would make the playoffs. The team with the best record would be the number one seed and have home field advantage throughout. The team with the number two seed would have a home game in the first round. And if the number one seed lost and the number two seed advanced, then the number two seed would host the the playoff game, the, the championship game. So the playoff order was Browns, number one, 49ers, number two, Yankees, number three, and Buffalo Bills, number four. Buffalo snuck in with a 500 record. So before the first round of playoffs, semifinals, I guess, is what you should probably call them, the San Francisco 49ers, they're going to host the Yankees, and they threatened to go on strike because their contract calls for them to be paid X amount of money over the entire season, including playoffs. Mm-hmm. So they were not going to get anything extra for this playoff game. And they didn't care for that. Mm. So they, uh, they appointed a committee of two, two team captains, to talk to the Morabito brothers, Vic and Tony, and told them, point blank, we want a $500 bonus for this playoff game or we're not playing. So the Morabito wow. brothers said, either you show up for this game or we are liquidating the franchise. The 49ers are no more. Wow. If you don't play this game, you're not getting a penny out of us. And the commissioner said, I'm behind the Morbido brothers. The contract strictly says every game on the schedule, including postseason. So the league backed the 49ers. The players backed down and they played the game and they won. Had the 49ers liquidated, I mean, that unquestionably would have been the end of the AAFC. It was on its last leg to begin with, but that would have been the, the crushing blow for the AAFC.
2: And, now,
0: and we, might, we might not even know about Joe Montana, Dwight Clark, the catch. It might have never
1: happened. Yes, exactly. If the 49ers had gone out of business, yeah, think of all the great football that we would have been deprived of.
0: Absolutely.
1: So in Cleveland, the Browns, in front of another lousy crowd, a crowd of only like 17,000 people, they beat Buffalo. And of those 17,000, there were like 4,000 people who made the the trip from Buffalo to root out the Bills, and the Bills almost pulled off the upset. Mm -hmm. So the championship game is going to be in Cleveland. The merger talks are going on at this point, and nobody knows anything about them again, as I said, except the participants. So now, now Tony Morabito, the guy who last week told his players, you're not getting another penny out of us, and if you go on strike, (laughs) we're folding the franchise. (laughs) Now, Tony Morabito says, you know, this game should be played in San Francisco, because Cleveland isn't going to draw flies to this game. Look at the, the crowd they drew for Buffalo, because the Browns' attendance had been steadily decreasing for the last two years. 48 and 49, the Browns' attendance had been decreasing. And they didn't draw anybody to the playoff against Buffalo. So now Morabito says, I'm going to ask the commissioner to please shift the championship game to San Francisco because I can sell 59,000 tickets in San Francisco. And then this is what makes me laugh then the players will get a bigger share of the pie because it's all about the players. <laughs> yeah, right. This is the guy who's threatening to liquidate the franchise uh, the week before, but now it's all about the players getting a bigger share of the uh, the, the playoff pie. Okay. So the commissioner says, no, no, we can't do that. Uh, Cleveland's the number one seed, and it would just be a bad precedent if we don't play the game there. So before the championship game is played, the merger agreement is announced. So everybody knows the AAFC is kaput. It's done. This is the last AAFC championship game. Technically, the Browns and 49ers are really playing for nothing. They're Mm -hmm. playing for the championship of a league that doesn't exist anymore. Mm
2: -hmm. Mm -hmm. The
1: AAFC is gone. It's now part of the National American Football League. So 22,000 people show up. The Browns... Win the game; they're the champions for the fourth consecutive year, and the the question then becomes: Okay, now the AAFC is gone; the Browns are absorbed into the NFL. Let's have that game that everybody's been screaming for for the past four years, and that the Browns have desperately wanted to play. Let's have the Philadelphia Eagles, winners of the NFL championship. Play the Browns and see who's really the best. Okay, band. all right. Let's
0: hold on, right hold now. on, hold on. One second. So they did not play right now, and I wrote this out because I did not want to miss this during our conversation. The you said earlier in our in, in you said earlier on today's podcast that it the Browns might be along with the Niners, the two best teams in all of professional football. The AAFC, and again, I wrote this out, had one final laugh. As you just said, the NFL's Philadelphia Eagles were regarded as the best team in the NFL, while the Browns were obviously the best in the AAFC. They did not play immediately after that last season, but they played against each other in a preseason game to start the 1950 season. Cleveland smoked Philly. They beat him 35 to 10. But the NFL didn't like the way Cleveland played, they didn't like the fact that Cleveland was passing the football. So, they played again later that year in the regular season, and this time, no passes were officially thrown, at least none by the Browns. Every play was a running play. Why? Why did Cleveland not throw a pass? Was this demanded of them by the league office? And ironically, even though they didn't throw a pass, they still won they beat Philly 13 to 7 and then they go on to win the NFL championship.
1: Wow. Well, yes. Uh, now let me let me tell you why that happened. It was not the league office, but it was a, an unlikely source. It was because of Paul Brown. And the reason being, after the Browns won that game in philadelphia and and blew them out, actually they won thirty five to ten, and it should have been forty two to ten. They had one touchdown negated by a penalty, which Paul Brown looked at the game films afterwards and swore. there was no penalty on <laughs> that play. It didn't make any difference. It just that we got the Browns we, yes. The Browns won by twenty five instead of thirty two. But after the game, Greasy Neal, Earl Greasy Neal, the head coach of the Eagles, said that was not real football because Otto Graham passed for 346 yards. The Browns had a sophisticated passing attack that nobody in the NFL had. And it goes to show you how rudimentary scouting was at that time. The, the Eagles were not ready for this. They hadn't seen it, didn't know how to defend it. Graham passes for 346 yards. But Greasy Neal says, no, no, no. That's not football. That was basketball in cleats. Real football teams win by running the ball. Throwing it is the wimpy way out. So Paul Brown, who was as straight-laced as anyone you're ever going to find, He doesn't like that comment. He doesn't care for that comment at all. And he admitted in his autobiography that probably for the only time in his career, he let his emotions get the better of him. And when the Browns played the Eagles later on in the season, Brown did not forget that comment about football in cleats and real teams win the game by running. So he told, the game was played in the rain, which may have helped uh, this decision. But Brown told Otto Graham, under no circumstances are you to throw a pass today. We are running the ball on every play, and I'm going to show Greasy Neal that I can beat him by running the ball and not throwing it. Wow. And that's why that happened.
0: Wow. And he did. He beat Philly at its own game,
1: yes, thirteen to seven. So it wasn't the offensive uh, explosion that it was in Philadelphia. But they still scored enough to win. And they did not run the ball once because Paul brown had uh, had something to prove to Greasy Neal. and he did.
0: You know, Gary, we can talk so much more about the AAFC, but I'd be giving away your entire book, The League That Didn't <laughs> Exist. So, so what are we to make of the AAFC? What is its legacy, and why is it important that we remember it?
1: Well, I, I think, first of all, the legacy of the AAFC is in the uh, the Browns, even though the Browns, of course, uh, went away and came back. Uh, in fact, here is something, Warren, that is really rather interesting to me. Um, a few weeks ago, Commissioner Goodell announced that, as you know, the draft is being awarded to various NFL cities, mm-hmm. and for 2021, the draft has been awarded to Cleveland, and Commissioner Goodell said that among the reasons Cleveland is going to host the 2021 draft is because it's the 75th anniversary of the Browns.
0: Interesting.
1: Now there you have a tacit admission from the commissioner of the NFL that the AAFC existed because that's when the Browns were born. They were not born in 1950. They were born in 1946 in the AAFC. So there is a little uh, light at the end of the tunnel Mm -hmm. that the NFL may be slowly changing its policy on how it views the AAFC. But that is the obvious uh, legacy. The Browns and the 49ers, the players who played in the NFL after the AAFC folded, and, and what they did, and all Otto Graham did, is lead the Browns to six consecutive championship games. And Lou Grozer retired as the leading scorer in NFL history. Of course, that has been eclipsed many times since then. And opening up places like Buffalo, mm-hmm. like Baltimore, showing that these were legitimate NFL cities. Maybe they didn't, uh, you know, Baltimore got their team back in 1953 and Buffalo joined the AFL in 1960, but Buffalo was able to, to show the AFL, here's our track record, look what we did in the AAFC, but maybe just the the bottom line is the AAFC was the only challenger to the NFL, with the exception of the AFL of 1960, that didn't give up. After a year or two years, the AAFC hung in there for four years and did get a couple of its franchises accepted, three of them, and did get a number of its players in the NFL who accomplished some very significant things. So some pretty good football was played in the AAFC. But as I say in the book, I really think the two things that worked against the AAFC, first of all, as we talked about, the Browns were just too good. Fans got tired. Even even the people in Cleveland got tired of watching the Browns win every week and every week and every week. <laughs> that sounds ridiculous. And I, when I mention it now, of course, we all laugh at it because of all the losing the Browns have been doing since 1999. It sounds absolutely ludicrous. But every week you knew the Browns were going to win. Apparently... It, it got kind of boring. But the other thing the AAFC was, was trying to do, as I mentioned earlier, still void that really didn't exist. Because it wasn't until 1958 in the epic Colts-Giants overtime championship game that suddenly the desire for professional football blossomed and the AFL came along at a time when there mm-hmm. was a demand for more, professional football. I think the AAFC was trying to fill a void that didn't really exist. I think Arch Ward may have overestimated the interest in professional football in 1946 and the AAFC was trying to fill a hole that really didn't exist.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Well, Gary, what's next for you? What are you working on now or what would you like to write next?
1: Well, as I mentioned, I'm uh, researching the 1950. Browns. I mean, they are unique in that I don't think any team has ever gone into a season. I mean, of course, every team's goal at the beginning of a season is to win the championship, whether it's the World Series, the Super Bowl, the Stanley Cup, the NBA Finals, whatever Mm -hmm. it is, every team's goal is to win the championship. But the Browns went into the 1950 season with such tunnel vision for four years, they had endured all the taunts from the NFL about how they weren't as good as the NFL. And George Preston Marshall, who is mentioned very often mm-hmm. in my book. And we didn't delighted. talk
0: about him. And, and he played such a large role in this entire battle between the two leagues.
1: He certainly did, yes. And and he used to take delight in saying the worst NFL team could beat the snot out of the best AAFC team, Hmm, meaning, hmm, of course, hmm. the Browns. Right. So, when the Browns entered the NFL in 1950, Paul Brown made it very clear to them, even though he didn't really have to do this because all of the players felt the same way, anything short of winning the NFL championship will mean this season was a disaster. (laughs) We must win the NFL championship, not just win more games than we lose, not just win the Eastern Division. If we do not win the NFL championship, this season will have been a total disaster.
0: Wow. And,
1: and they, they did it. They managed to do it, and I've been researching just, uh, just how it, uh, it, it was done because I don't know that any team has ever entered the season – with that kind of of pressure on it. I mean, they felt that they had to prove to the world that they were the best team. And they they managed to do it. So that is uh, what, uh, what iron is on the fire for me currently.
0: Very cool. Like I said, Gary, we could talk so much more, but I'd be giving away your entire book. I encourage everyone out there to get a copy of of Gary Webster's book, The League That Didn't Exist. It's really, really good. And Gary, thank you, thank you, thank you so much for spending all this time with us on Sports Forgotten Heroes. I can't tell you how much I appreciate this. You, sir, are a wealth of knowledge.
1: Well, Warren, it has been a great pleasure. I appreciate your interest, and I hope we'll have a chance to chat again.
0: Absolutely. Gary, thank you so much.
1: You're so welcome. Thank you.
0: You know, midway through today's podcast, we talked about the Colts. There were several issues concerning the Colts and ownership, the biggest being Gene Tunney, the former heavyweight champion of the world. The All-America Football Conference wanted to place a team in Baltimore before Miami. Tunney tried to secure a stadium deal with the city, but it fell through. After the one-season disaster in Miami, the AAFC went back to Baltimore. A group of businessmen purchased the team, and the All-America Football Conference approved the sale very quickly. Of course, the team now named the Colts, still did not have much in the way of talent, so the AAFC took a few good players from some of its strongest teams and reassigned their contracts to the Colts and the Chicago Rockets and Brooklyn Dodgers as well, so all three could field more competitive teams. There have been so many attempts at creating football leagues to compete against the NFL and really Only two met with any sort of success, the All-America Football Conference and the American Football League. And of course, the American Football League was the most successful as the Boston, now New England Patriots, Buffalo Bills, Denver Broncos, Houston Oilers, now the Tennessee Titans, Kansas City Chiefs, New York Jets, Oakland Raiders. And the San Diego Chargers, now the Los Angeles Chargers, all merged with the NFL to go along with two new teams, the Cincinnati Bengals and Miami Dolphins. The Browns and Colts, in one way, shape, or form, along with the 49ers, are what remains from the All-America Football Conference. And all three have had great periods of success in the NFL, so you could say each have done the AAFC very proud. Okay, before we close out today's show, let's dive back into the mailbox. And today's note comes to us from RS at Thoughts of RS on Twitter. This came just after the episode on what I think is one of the most obscure teams in the history of sports, the Kansas City Scouts. RS suggested we do a show on the Colorado Rockies or Cleveland Barons, both of whom played in the NHL. Well, RS, both are great topics, and I'm hoping to do a show on the Barons this season. Stay tuned. Hey, I'd like to hear from more of you as well. Once again, I'd like to thank today's guest, Gary Webster. You can find his book on Amazon, The League That Didn't Exist, a history of the All-America Football Conference 1946-1949. to A terrific history of a league that, as I've said, I find very fascinating. As always, thanks to all of you for
2: listening, and we'll see you next time on Sports Forgotten Heroes.